You might know that tune as a decent piece of music from the Beatles' White Album. But if in the early 70s you were following the prosecution of the murderous psychopath Charles Manson and his so-called family, you'd be aware of the fact that Manson somehow thought that Beatles tune was calling for a race war and fed into his crazy idea that he should initiate one via a series of murders. Convicting Charles Manson for the Tate-LaBianca murders was no mean feat, given that it was acknowledged by all that he was not present at either murder scene. But prosecuted he was, successfully through the efforts of Los Angeles Assistant District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi. His book, written jointly with Kurt Gentry about that Manson trial, Helter Skelter, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is the biggest-selling true crime book in publishing history, with over 7 million copies sold. Now a national figure, Bugliosi went on to become an outspoken critic of the media and lawyers and judges in some major trials, particularly the O.J. Simpson case. Bugliosi wrote a best-selling book, Outrage, in which he argues for Simpson's guilt and criticizes the work of the DA's prosecutors, also defense lawyers, and Judge Lance Ito, not to mention the national media. I have to admit, I agreed with him on this one, the whole O.J. Simpson circus, which went on for, I don't know, years, literally years, certainly pointed out the flaws in uh, both our judicial system and the media, since Simpson was so obviously guilty. I would add that the opinion that O.J. Simpson was guilty does not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, although God knows it should. Vincent Bugliosi also scored some points in our book when he went on to criticize the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Clinton versus Jones. He wrote a bestseller about that too, titled No Island of Sanity, in which he argues that the right of a president to be unburdened by a private lawsuit outweighed Paula Jones's interest in having her case brought to a trial immediately. Radio Parallax caught up with Mr. Bugliosi at a uh, Commonwealth Club event in May of 2007. He was then... Uh, doing a reading and talking about his book, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of JFK. I'll have more to say about that in a minute, along with a funny story. But what I really want to concentrate on now is our chat with him in June of 2008. Vincent Bugliosi had come to believe that George W. Bush should have been charged with murder for the more than 4,000 American soldiers who had died in Iraq since the American-led invasion of the country because of his belief that Bush had launched the invasion under false pretenses. Mr. Moreland, do me the favor of queuing up the first five minutes of that program. The war in Iraq is a conflict based upon lies. The Bush administration carefully and falsely associated the secular regime of Saddam Hussein with the Al-Qaeda terrorists who attacked us from their haven in Afghanistan. George W. Bush misled Americans, not just with a dishonest association of Iraq with 9-11, but also by claims of imminent danger from Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. America thus rushed into an unnecessary war that continues to chew up lives and waste resources at a prodigious clip. Over 4,000 Americans have died, over 100,000 Iraqis. Our guest today has taken a proactive approach to this issue. Vincent Bugliosi is a best-selling author and former prosecutor with the L.A. District Attorney's Office. He knows something about murder, having obtained 21 convictions and 21 tries for the crime. This matter of prosecution for a capital offense drives our discussion today from Mr. Bugliosi's current book is titled The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. 
Major media outlets have given little coverage to this book, but awareness of it is spreading word of mouth. We're going to do everything possible to assist that process over the next 30-plus minutes. So without further ado, I'd like to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Vincent Bugliosi. Doug, uh, thank you for having me on the show. You were talking about they're not covering me much. Actually, there's been a total, complete blackout by the national media. For the first time in my career, I've had a lot of bestsellers, three that got up to number one. And uh, this one, uh, this book, I had a very difficult time getting it published. Finally got it published. Um, the audio, we couldn't get it done in America. And finally, the British Broadcasting Company did the audio on it. We're doing a... Um, documentary for the big screen and the producers couldn't raise a penny in America and uh, finally the money came in from Canada and uh, for the first time in my career I didn't start out in New York on the national shows which I've done for all my other uh, bestsellers traveling around the country total blackout liberal moderate and conservative could not get on any national shows they're just terrified of talking about prosecuting George Bush for murder and then, of course, if he were convicted, he could be sentenced to death. There's no conspiracy out there against me. It's just that everyone, every member uh, of the mainstream media uh, uh, individually agrees that they do not want to talk to me about this, uh, about this subject. But the book's already a national, uh, a New York Times national bestseller. And that's because of very strong word of mouth and, and folks like you, Doug, uh, who are having me on your, um, your radio shows. But the national media has totally blacked me out. Well, we're happy to note that when you appeared on Amy Goodman a couple of weeks ago, you reported then that a lawyer pal of yours has won a bet with Ralph Nader, who said this book would never get out in the first place. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if he said it wouldn't get out, but he said it would never become a bestseller. <laughs> and uh, he said that the media would just uh, uh, suppress it. But it is a, a bestseller now because of folks like you and, uh, and very strong word of mouth. There are people that feel that this is mo- my most powerful book. Uh, those that haven't read the book will call in on shows and saying that, say that it's bizarre, that it's radical, uh, but no one who has read this book has said that there's anything crazy about it. In fact, it's identical to every other true crime book I've ever written. You know, Helter Skelter, Outrage, uh, Amnesty Will Tell, To Death Us Depart, Reclaiming History and the Kennedy Assassination. It's identical in that I present the evidence and the applicable law uh, to prove my case. So there's nothing uh, bizarre or radical about this book at all, but the, the sound of it the prosecution of George W. Bush for murder, some people think that the president cannot be prosecuted for murder when he takes the nation to war. And he can't unless he takes the nation to war under false pretenses, which I demonstrate very, very clearly in this book. And therefore, when he does something like that, then all of the killings of American soldiers in Iraq become unlawful killings and therefore um, murder. One interesting thing, Doug, is that Although millions, and I'm sure billions, of very harsh, extremely uh, critical words have been said and written about Bush in the last seven years, very few of which, if any, he could possibly care any less about. So the words basically uh, are meaningless. Up to now, other than talk, no one has done anything at all to George Bush. No impeachment, uh, no investigation of him, nothing at all. He's gotten off scot-free. But uh, in my book, I put together a legal case against him that could result in his being prosecuted for first-degree murder in an American courtroom after he leaves the presidency. He's got temporary immunity right now. I set forth the legal, ar- the legal architecture for the case against Bush, the overwhelming evidence of, uh, of his guilt, and the jurisdiction to prosecute him. And uh, if justice means anything in America, and if we're not going to forget about these 4,000 young American soldiers who came back from Bush's war in a box, I say we have no choice but to bring murder charges against him. And we shouldn't forget 
Doug, about the over 100,000 innocent Iraqi men, women, children, and babies who have died horrible deaths because of George Bush's war. He's responsible for, uh, for their murder, too, but there's no jurisdiction to prosecute him for those murders. But the 4,000 American soldiers, uh, those murders are prosecutable here in the United States. Yes, just as he was right about Manson being guilty, O.J. being guilty, and the stupidity of letting the Paula Jones lawsuit go forward, we think he was right about George Bush being prosecutable for war crimes, murder in this case. It seems clear enough that some sort of deal must have been cut or some accommodation reached between the outgoing uh, Republican administration in 2008 and the incoming Democrats in 2009 under Barack Obama because, well, nobody's been prosecuted for the war crimes in Iraq. And take a look at what a great job we've done over there. The Republican wannabe candidates are having a hard time distancing themselves between, uh, uh, well, their hawkish policies and the realities of what took place in Iraq. You can say what you want about the authoritarian regimes in the Fertile Crescent, that of Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. But one thing's for sure, before we went in there with an armed force to spread chaos, Islamic fundamentalists were not in charge of anything. Now, ISIS is running amok. We reported on this show about how ill-advised it might be to try and destabilize the Assad regime in Syria. Many folks pointed out that we didn't have the muscle to pull that off. And of course, we managed to partly destabilize it, let the Islamic fundamentalists take over. And now, we are both fighting the fundamentalists. We also want to refer you on our website to um, chats we had with Charlotte Dennett. She was an an author and an activist. She was running for a district attorney back in New England, and she was working with Vincent Bugliosi to try and establish a jurisdiction from which George W. Bush would be prosecuted for murder. She was not successful. We recommend listening to what she had to say back in the spring of 2010. That is on our website at radioparallax.com. In fact, if you go to our website and type in Bugliosi, you'll be able to pull up all of our chats with him and about him. I'm sorry to note we're unable to find a clip uh, or an interview with Mr. Bugliosi about his book, The Betrayal of America. So I'm going to, I think, be forced to read uh, from it and about it. Writing in Salon.com, author Charles Taylor had this to say in the summer of 2001. Keep in mind this was written just months before 9-11 changed everything in the George W. Bush administration. Wrote Taylor, The toughest, most uncompromising words I've read anywhere lately are in the spring issue of Dissent. In an issue devoted to strategies for dealing with the coming four years of W rule, Philip Green confesses to having no appetite for such strategies. What attitude, he asks, should the inhabitants of a conquered province have toward their conquerors? What else can explain the lack of what Green calls any will to resist or defy an unprecedented outrage of the Supreme Court stealing an election? The lack of such will in the Democratic Party, with the notable exception of the Congressional Black Caucus, is another story, one I'll return to. For the rest of us 50 million Americans whose votes, we were told by the highest court in the land, simply didn't count, it can't be simple apathy. How do you oppose the policies of a presidential administration when the U.S. is operating without a legitimate president? How do you participate in a democracy when Rehnquist and four other thugs on his court, Scalia, Thomas, O'Connor, and Kennedy, have used the democratic system to nullify the very idea of democracy? We may as a nation have sprung from a revolution, but no matter what fairy tales the hard left is now telling, we are not a revolutionary country. So what do we do? Vincent Bugliosi, the author and prosecutor most famous for putting Charles Manson behind bars, argues that knowledge is power in his slim, trenchant time bomb of a book, 
the betrayal of America. By clearly understanding what the Supreme Court did, we can remove the cloak of respect and legitimacy that shields it from actions of protest. Boliosi's article started out as an article in The Nation last fall, and it received a greater response from readers than any other piece the magazine had ever published. It has been expanded here with a preface by the Nation's editors, forwards by Molly Ivins and Jerry Spence, and an introduction by Boliosi. Their article's original title reveals Boliosi's intent, none dare call it treason. Always grounded in the law, but using the harshest language he can muster, hectoring and ridiculing where he deems it necessary, Boliosi outlines his case. He argues that in stopping the Florida recount and effectively handing the election to George W. Bush, which was clearly, he claims, their intent, the five conservative justices engaged in criminal conduct bordering on treason. Boliosi claims that the only reason their action isn't legally treasonable is that Congress never dreamed of enacting a statute making it a crime to steal a presidential election. He goes on later, One of the things that most appalls Boliosi is that with the exception of some legal scholars, he has heard no conservative condemn the court's hijacking of the election. The ruthless installation of Bush in the White House serves the ends of the hard right, though it may well appall the principled conservatives who've been made to feel like pariahs in the Republican Party. Anyway, we recommend that you read the piece and that you read the book. Let's face it, if we didn't have a stolen election in 2000, it's pretty damn likely we wouldn't have had a phony baloney war in Iraq in 2003. Oh, the military-industrial complex might still have gotten his way, but the whole Iraq war thing was an invention of the neocons, and they were not allied with Senator and Vice President Al Gore. And I think I'll take a moment to read what Vincent Bugliosi had to say about the local contribution to this Supreme Court case, that of Anthony Kennedy. Justice Kennedy has distinguished himself by aligning with the right on both the Bush v. Gore case and Citizens United, possibly the two worst Supreme Court decisions since the Dred Scott case in 1857, which led directly to the Civil War. But I would add personally that Kennedy has the distinction of being the fifth justice in the Kelo versus City of London case, where he aligned with, in this case, four liberal justices in ruling that the powers of eminent domain made it okay to transfer land from one private owner to another private owner if there was some economic advantage in the deal. But to quote from Vincent Bugliosi in The Betrayal of America, Since the Nation article's publication, the belief in the legal community has been that Justice Anthony Kennedy was the primary author of the Supreme Court's decision giving the election to George Bush. If for no other reason, let's take a longer look at Kennedy. A November 23, 1987 article by Aaron Freewall in the Washington, D.C.-based legal journal Legal Times refers to Kennedy in his pre-court days as a Sacramento lawyer-slash-lobbyist who for no pay traveled the state on behalf of then-Governor Ronald Reagan's anti-tax initiative. The initiative did not pass, but Kennedy, as Freewald wrote, won a soft spot in the heart of the governor. Not long after Kennedy's pro bono work on the anti-tax initiative, Governor Reagan was in touch with the Nixon White House. He urged the president to consider Kennedy, then 38, for a nomination to the prestigious U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Ultimately, it was President Gerald Ford who gave Kennedy the nod. Anthony Kennedy's father was a legendary Sacramento lobbyist whose clientele Kennedy inherited when his father died unexpectedly in 1963. Kennedy's clients included Shenley, California Association of Dispensing Opticians, Capital Records, GRT Corporation, and the National Association of Alcoholic Beverage Importers. 
Freewald writes that it was in this money-soaked world of politics in the capital of the nation's most popular and diverse state that Anthony Kennedy came of age, doing well by his clients, meeting the right people, and setting in motion the events which would culminate in his Supreme Court appointment. We would add parenthetically, this may explain why he thinks corporations are people and have free speech rights. Freewald continued, Kennedy contributed thousands of dollars on behalf of his clients to state and local elected officials. In the clubby world of Sacramento lawyer lobbyists, Kennedy was one of the guys you know, recalls Clayton Jackson, now one of Sacramento's highest paid lobbyists. I must say that my connection at McGeorge has more than once mentioned that Anthony Kennedy is returning back to the school. And although I have begged him to please finagle me an invitation so that I can, during the Q&A, ask Justice Kennedy to please explain to a layman the Bush versus Gore legal reasoning. It's usually about that point that my connection makes sure that he avoids me (laughs) for sufficient time to where Kennedy comes and goes. And no, I don't think a punk like me is going to make a Supreme Court justice quake in his boots, but I sure would like a crack at him. What really breaks my heart is that we did not ask Vincent Bugliosi to come back on the program after we've spoken to him twice to discuss this book as a, as a third option. We've done that with several other authors, including San Francisco entertainment writer Gerald Nachman and Gordon Uncle John Javna of the Uncle John Bathroom Readers series. And although I'm kicking myself, alas, it, it, it shall not be. But at times, I just love Bugliosi's channeled outrage. And I quote, Other than the unprecedented and outrageous nature of what the court did, nothing surprises me more than how it is being viewed by the legal scholars and pundits who have criticized the opinion. As far as I can determine, most have correctly assailed the court for issuing a ruling that was clearly political. As the December 25th time capsulized it, a sizable number of critics from law professors to some of the court's own members have attacked the ruling as politically motivated. A sampling from a few law professors... Vanderbilt professor Susanna Sherry said, there is really very little to reconcile this opinion other than they wanted Bush to win. Yale law professor Akhil Reed Amar noted the five conservative justices failed to cite a single case that on its facts comes close to supporting its analysis and results. Adding, for Supreme Court watchers, this case will be like B.C. and A.D. For many of my colleagues, this was like the day President Kennedy was assassinated. Many of us had thought the courts do not act in an openly political fashion. Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy called the decision outrageous. Footnoted Bugliosi, the ruling was so bad it was very difficult to find even conservative legal scholars who supported it, and when the few who attempted to do so stepped up to the plate, their observations were simply pathetic. University of California Law Professor John Yu which I should add parenthetically, became later famous during the Bush administration as he justified the use of torture in Iraq. A former law clerk for Clarence Thomas wrote that we should balance the short-term hit to the court's legitimacy with whether it was in the best interest of the country to end the electoral crisis. (laughs) Bugliosi says, translation, when election's close, it's better for the Supreme Court to pick the president whether or not he won the election than to have the dispute resolved in the manner prescribed by law. He added, Pepperdine Law School's Douglas Kmeck unbelievably wrote that the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court was not along partisan or ideological lines and that its ruling protected our cherished democratic tradition with soundly reasoned per curiam voter restraint. Said Bugliosi, I won't dignify this with a translation. Anyway, it's sad to know that the election of 2000, or the theft of the election of 2000, will probably resonate in America forever. 
Much like I'm sad to say, does the assassination of the 35th president of the U.S., John F. Kennedy. I can remember so well uh, talking to a person we've had on the show many times, Jim Diogenio, historian and a deep politics scholar. Jim spoke with uh, Bugliosi many times, by the way, and said the funny thing about him is, you know, he totally believes the Robert Kennedy assassination was the result of a conspiracy. It's just that he thinks otherwise about his brother. I remember calling up Jim one night in December of 2000 as this election fiasco was rolling forward in Florida and saying, stop me if you've heard this one before. We're seeing actions from some combined elements of Texas oil men, anti-Castro Cubans, shadowy intelligence operatives, fundamentalist Christians, and right-wing military zealots, maybe with some mafia elements thrown in. Are we talking about Florida election 2000 or the JFK assassination? Jim laughed and said, gee, I don't think anybody's put it quite that way. Well, I put it quite that way 15 years ago, and I'm putting it quite that way now. I think the two uh, have some curious correlations. Let's just leave it at that. Yes, we do refer you to our archives to listen to our chat with Mr. Bugliosi about his book on the JFK assassination. I don't agree with him, but I respected him and gave him his say. And I should add, not many did. I refer you to Mark Evanier's blog, News From Me, which is almost always excellent. Actually, it pretty much always is excellent. Mark Avenier had a chance to, to meet up with Vincent Bugliosi before they actually published Reclaiming History. Mark agreed with the premise, by the way, that Oswald acted alone without Confederates. But notes that sometime after that book came out, he was at a book festival where he noticed that Bugliosi was present and not autographing that book or even discussing it. He'd since then published a book called The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder, making the case that guess who should be behind bars. Said Mark, folks were lining up to praise him for it and get it signed. He says, I never read it, by the way. And when I ran into him in the author's lounge on a break, we talked about how his JFK book had not made quite the splash for which he'd hoped. Said Bugliosi, almost no one wanted me to go on their TV or radio programs and discuss it, whereas I'm fighting off offers to go on and talk about this new one. Said Mark, I suggested it was because, A, the murder of Kennedy was a long-ago matter and everyone who cares about it has made up their minds, and B, interviewers don't like having on an author unless they read their book, and none of them want to read a 1,600-plus page book. He told me that I was right, and I felt the flush of pride that he'd said that because I didn't think he thought anyone was ever right except Vincent Bugliosi. Of course, I don't know whether Mark Evanier got the idea that uh, interviewers like to read the book before they interview authors. Mr. McMillan and I are generally praised by authors when they come on this program because they are, well, they're just generally pleasantly astonished that we actually did read the book. Reading does not seem to be an industry standard, Mark. Anyway, we didn't always agree with him, but we think he was a great man, and we feel privileged that we had him on the program. We salute Vincent Bugliosi. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 